From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. There's a second war going on uh, here among us online and in communal settings and at dinner tables and at the Oneg and all of that. Each time you get into one of those conversations, you have the choice whether to contribute to the energy of war and attack or to engage from a place of kindness as best you can. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and today it's my pleasure to speak with Rabbi Amy Eilberg. We'll be discussing Rabbi Eilberg's essay, Loving Kindness in a Time of War. The piece was published on November 7th, exactly one month after Hamas's barbarous assault on civilians in Israel and the onset of a war that continues to take a considerable toll on Israelis and Palestinians. Needless to say, her message remains relevant, that so many people beyond those directly impacted have suffered a trauma, that the way most of us can make a difference right now is maybe not through political advocacy, but through acts of loving kindness. That's, I think, the, the central message of the essay. Rabbi Eilberg has written extensively about her views on the conflict, on peacemaking, um, especially in Holding the Pain and the Love, an Evolve essay she published last April, as well as a subsequent web conversation she did about the essay with Rabbi Jacob Staub. We'll share those links in the show notes, or you can find them easily at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Okay, this is a great spot to remind you that all of the essays are available to read at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org for free. So check it out. And if you want to stay up to date on the latest essays, videos, and podcasts from Evolve, the best way to do that is to sign up for the Evolve newsletter. We'll leave a link right in our show notes. This Purim, I know Purim seems like a long way off, but it'll be here before you know it, we'll be offering an exclusive essay for everybody subscribed to the newsletter. So sign up today. So in this conversation with Rabbi Eilberg, we don't get much or at all into what the major parties, the Israelis, Americans, Palestinian Authority should do now. Instead, we're really focused on how individuals dealing with this trauma might be able to help themselves and how Jewish communities, and I think we're really talking about Jewish communities outside of Israel, not in the direct line of, uh, of, of, of fighting a rocket fire, might heal themselves. It was a fascinating conversation, and I was glad to be a part of it. Okay, let's get to our guest. Rabbi Amy Eilberg is the first woman ordained as a conservative rabbi by the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. She serves as a spiritual director, peace and justice educator, and teacher of Musar. Her 2014 book, From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom and the Pursuit of Peace, was published by Orbis Books. Note, we recorded this interview on Monday, December 11th, the fifth night of Hanukkah. We're a small staff, and it takes us a little bit of time to produce and edit a podcast episode, so you're hearing it now. Rabbi Amy Eilberg, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you, to see you. That's really good to be here. Thanks, Brian. So there's so much to talk about. I wanted to dive right in and, and kind of unpack. Uh, first, I want to read something you you wrote, because it 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 honestly felt like you were writing directly to me, like like I'm sure you had me in mind when you wrote this, and, and I'm sure others must have felt like this as well. It's one of those times when you read something and it just, it just hits the nail on the head. Um, you wrote in your most recent Evolve essay, it's a paragraph, but I'm going to read it. I think it's important. In this current moment of intense collective pain, I notice another element, how many of us, myself included, 
regularly go to our heads, reflexively wrestling with policy issues and attempts to predict the future, compulsively consuming more and more videos and webinars, and debating multiple organizational statements, rather than feeling the pain of what we have all witnessed and experienced. We live out the illusion that if we could just figure it out, find the right analysis or prognostication, or land a fatal verbal blow on an objectionable post, then we would feel better. Obviously, you're writing this in in, in response to everything we've seen since October 7th in the Israel-Hamas war, and, and it just like really spoke to me. I've, I've found myself preparing for like a major address on, on Israel policy that I'm never <laughs> going to be asked to give or, or some, you know, give some quote to, to a call from the New York times. That's never going to come. Like, <laughs> I just want to first, I, I know you're not a trained psychologist, but what do you think that that's about? What do you, what do you think at the root at the root of this? I, I think I just, I want to start there and, and kind of work our way through unpacking it. Yeah. Um, as I'm listening to you, and it's now been, you know, a month and some since I wrote the piece, um, I think it's pretty, it, it's a pretty simple mechanism. My teachers in social work school would have called it intellectualization. Hmm. And that that's a defense, right? Especially those of us who you know, have achieved and, and academically and that sort of thing. And we value intellect and in our culture that it's such a trained um, instinct, the sort of jumping to my head, let me figure this out. And then as if that's the solution, but in psychological terms, it's intellectualizing um, as a defense against pain, against grief, all the grief, mm. all the rage, all the fear all the confusion, all the disorientation, all, all of that, that, that October 7th and its aftermath has, has brought us. So in a sense, it's, it's easy to understand. It, it's so, it's such a trained instinct. It's fine to defend ourselves when we have overwhelming pain. The problem is that then more pain can come because of the defense that we're using Either we get a headache or we get exhausted or we get, you know, all of those things from all that intense intellectual activity or we start acting badly by trying to land those rhetorical punches um, on people and thereby creating creating more war, rhetorical war than there was. I'm thinking check, check, check as you're saying this, but, you know. But I I know we're gonna get we'll 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 get to talk to meditation in 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 a bit. But I'm I'm hearing, I don't know I don't know him personally, but but I know him through through a computer app. Jo- Joseph Goldstein, the meditation teacher, often talks about is it is it useful? Like how do yep. you determine if this is useful? Like like there's unbelievably complex moral philosophical, political questions where we're being confronted with um, ranging from response to war to, to trying to understand anti-Semitism. And on some way, like some of us are being asked to act in the world, you know, if not give a speech, but attend a rally, sign something, post something on social media, like, and, and you know, the mind does need time to, to think. So I'm just like, how do you... <laughs> How do you determine when it's useful or when it is warding off against, you know, really feeling what the, the, the things that are healthy to feel? Yeah. Um, so, so one is timing to look at timing. You're, you're right that there are times that we have a decision to make. Should I post? Should I sign? Should I go to the rally? You know, that sort of thing. Should I protest a certain, you know, thing that I saw online or wherever. Um, and then I have to think about, you know, that decision. But much of the time, it's just reflexive. And I think the way through that, and my, my meditation teacher, um, Sylvia Borstein, who's a close friend and colleague oh, wow. of, of Joseph Goldstein, I think would say, one of the things she would say would be kind of go inside and ask, what's true in this moment for you? And when I ask that question of myself, it takes me deeper than intellectualization. 
if I ask what's true for me in that moment when I've been all high strung, trying to figure a million imponderable, figure out a million imponderables, um, what I find is I'm exhausted, I'm frustrated, I'm I'm frightened, um, I'm feeling helpless, actually, uh, I'm in pain, right? So assuming that's, that's the truth of the moment, then the path of wisdom in that moment is to attend to that pain rather than hide out in the, in the intellectualization, which is not necessarily such a safe or comfortable place um, all the time. Does it, is it letting ourselves off the hook to say, I'm going to tend my pain. I don't, I'm not, I'm not the general or the prime minister or whoever. I don't have to figure this out. Or is that healthy to, to say that? Like, I don't, I don't have to figure this out. I really don't have to figure it out. I mean, I'm a rabbi. So if I'm about to give a sermon, I need to discern what I'm going to, what I'm going to say. Or if I'm about to write something, I need to, you know, think about that. But I am not the general and I'm not the prime minister. You know, I'm not at the negotiating table. So maybe it wounds our pride to say, you know what, it doesn't really matter what I figure out or don't figure out in this moment, but I notice actually I'm suffering and it's, it's not getting anywhere. Um, it's, it's not productive. It's just ruminating. It's the kind of thing that would keep me and many other people from sleeping at night. And that doesn't help me be a better Jew or rabbi or human being in this moment, just to have myself stirred up, working so hard to figure out the imponderable. Mm. It it actually makes me a better human being when I can notice how much pain I'm in, because sometimes that can then open me to recognizing how much pain everybody else is into. Wow. I mean, I guess, does that come back to like, I think I've said this on the podcast before. It, I didn't make it up. That treat everyone you meet as if they might be going through the worst day, like something, something like that. Like, is that? Yes, and and it's true. It's not hypothetical. Hmm. You know, most Jews hmm. that we meet these days, wow, are in deep pain. You know, each person is a little different, and you know, depends on their network of relationships and, you know, all of that. But it's, it's pretty fair assumption that most Jews that, that I meet these days are in pain. And it's also true that most Muslims I meet are in pain. Sure. And some Christians that I meet, people who care about peace, all kinds of people are in pain. So it's not some sort of pie in the sky, like, oh, maybe somebody's in pain. I mean, really, everybody is. So, um, I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to, you know, write up, convey in the, in the piece was to say, it's not that if I'm just trying to attend to my pain and that of, ever, of everyone else that I'm evading responsibility to do something about the war. I actually am doing something about the war in a certain sense by putting more loving, peaceful energy into the world and into my own thoughts. I know we're we're a ways we're recording in December a ways away from the high holidays which are which are late next year. I mean, you talked about thoughts. I don't like trying to take account. I don't know if I've said anything that's totally out of character for me, or or um, or, or 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 posted or written anything. But I've certainly I've certainly thought things that 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 just um lack empathy and 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 I'm almost like who you know who is this in my in my brain and where 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 did they come from like what um is there I mean do you think we're all going to have accounting to to seek forgiveness at at some point or 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 is this a a case where each of us should be giving ourselves more more self empathy or or just like uh, probably many of us have said written or or thought things that are that are a little out of characters you know in in these really heightened times 
Yeah, so it's it's interesting that you're raising that as a chuva issue. Um, I've been thinking about it mostly as a trauma issue mm. that all of us are in this state of high activation, you know, fear, anger, grief, you know, we're hyper vigilant, we're hypersensitive to everybody else, somebody else's comments or posts, either they didn't post and were angry that they, they were silent or they did post and they didn't say the right thing or they posted and they said something awful, you know, um, and we are, we're, we're not, we're at the opposite of our best. We're, we're depleted where, you know, the, there's science about this, about how the brain responds to trauma. So, this was a massive, October 7th was a massive trauma. That's really an understatement for, um, for Israel and I, and I think for the Jewish people. A- and then the subsequent war on Gaza is another massive trauma on, on our neighbors and in some cases on ourselves as well. So I don't know that I'm going to have to, there've been during this period, maybe a couple of things that I've said that were not my best, you know, dialogue technique Um, for sure. There've been a couple of those, but maybe not to the point of something that I would need to do tshuva for. I think it's more, um, especially when I know when I'm in the midst of a traumatic uh, reaction, it's really good to, pay a lot of attention and bring a lot of mindfulness because it is possible that from that place I could really do harm with my words or my actions. So would you look at it as a much more short-term issue right now? How do folks reckon with, be mindful of, or, or get out of that place of trauma? I hope so. I hope that by the time this podcast airs, you know, uh, this interview airs, that the war will be over. Um, I think that's unlikely. Um, I, I hope this war will be over soon and that then we'll be able to take a breath just as, you know, during a, that brief period of ceasefire, some of us were able to take a breath just just a little bit and give our nervous systems a bit of a of arrest. I mean, even after the active hostilities have finished, there's still lots to be activated about. So I don't know when our nervous systems are going to get a long-term rest. We're, we're all in tremendous pain. Um, and it's not good for us as humans. It's not good for our physical health. Uh, I think ultimately it's not good for us as a community because we don't make our best decisions from, um, from that place of dysregulation either it's true for individuals and it's true for collectives as well so you mentioned it earlier how are how are you using loving kindness as a means to to make a difference right now so honestly i was most aware of it the first month or so after october 7th um it's a lot like in the immediate aftermath you notice in the immediate aftermath of a death there's Hmm. a there's a impulse to be, you know, aside from formal, you know, loving kindness practice, it's just an impulse. The way people are in Shiva homes, we're just instinctively kinder to each other. We, we reach out, we know we're hurting. We know everybody in the house is hurting. We know everybody in the house is there because they care for the immediate mourners. So there's just an impulse to, to reach out in, in kindness. And I felt that very keenly, especially the first month um, after the attack, the great awareness that virtually everyone I was in conversation with was in deep pain, including myself. So I, I, I tried to really ramp up my formal practice, bring more energy and focus um, to my formal metta, loving kindness practice, which I do every morning. Um, but also I noticed that there was that same sort of loving, leaning in lovingly and kindly to, didn't get it right 100% of the time, but, you know, with each email, with each phone call, with each even person that I greeted in shul, um, sort of leaning in to extend extra kindness as best I could from my heart 
to someone else who I knew was hurting. And, and, and then I realized, oh my gosh, that's meta practice right in my email, you know, right in, right, you know, in, in the, you know, in the midst of my day, as well as um, really trying to focus on thinking of various people that I've noticed who I know are in pain, who have a child in the army, who know someone who was abducted, who know, was recently at a funeral for someone, uh, for someone who was killed, or just someone who's anguishing over the, you know, over the newspaper, over the news each day. Um, and then sometimes when I feel that I have the sort of emotional, spiritual bandwidth, you know, I have the capacity to reach further, to reach toward the people who are protesting angrily in a way that makes me uncomfortable, even makes me very uncomfortable, but recognizing that they're in pain too and wishing them well and certainly leaning into people in Gaza, some percentage of whom are, are fighters, but the great majority of whom are just innocent people um, and definitely wishing wishing them well, imagining a, a mother in Gaza and wishing her blessings and wishing her child blessings. Um, so that's what, that's what the practice has been looking like for me. So what is metta meditation and how did you, how did you find it? Yeah. So it's a, it's an ancient, um, originally Buddhist practice dates to the time of the Buddha himself, um, which involves the uh, silent recitation of a series of phrases, usually four phrases that are basically blessings or prayers or wishes for well-being for um, someone. So the different versions of it, the, the one I want one simple version, the, the one that I use these days is, may you be safe. May you be well, may you be happy, may you be at peace. And in the practice, I off the formal practice, you know, when I'm sitting down and, you know, meditation at a determined time, I offer those blessings or their wishes for well-being first for myself. I think there's great wisdom in this from the Buddhist tradition, and I think it really parallels some dynamics in Jewish tradition as well, like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, you have to love yourself in order to know what love feels like and then to offer it, you know, to to another. So first I offer those phrases to myself. And my teachers tell me that if on some days that is all I can do and that's the most important thing I can do. And after all, my heart is the one that I can that I have most access to and, and can have an impact on. Sometimes I spend about my whole 20 minutes offering loving kindness um, for myself. But sometimes in the, in the formal practice, and when I, when I go on retreats, we spend a day just offering kindness to ourselves. And then we spend a day doing this meditation all, all day, offering loving kindness to um, someone who makes us smile or a mentor. Um, someone who's been really an important positive person in my life. And, and then in the next round or the next day on retreat, mm. um, I offer those wishes of well-being for a loved one, someone that I really care about. And then the next stage is wishing well-being to someone with whom I have a superficial relationship, the person who delivers my mail or from whom I buy coffee, then what happens is when, when you start really wishing, paying attention to wishing well for someone, you know, the barista or whatever, then, then you start getting fond of her, you know, cause you're sort of pouring, mm. pouring love into her, into him, into them. Um, and then the next stage when we have, when we have capacity um, is to offer words of blessing, those words of blessing to, um, to a difficult person um, in our lives and what often happens, if the timing is right, is noticing, yeah, that person really, really hurt me, or I can't stand what they're doing in the world. But of course, I don't wish them ill. Of course, I, I don't wish them dead. I don't wish harm to their children. I, just in the most basic human way. And then ultimately, the last stage is wishing well for everyone, for for all living beings. So sometimes I break up my 20 minutes and I go through all of, you know, each of those categories 
in the morning, or sometimes I just do whichever ones feel most salient. Like this morning I did myself and then I skipped to uh, people in Gaza. That's just what I was moved, uh, moved to do this morning. Um, so that's the formal practice. But then all the teachers say, you know, that's just the 20 minutes sitting on the cushion in the morning. But then how do I bring the practice uh, into my life? So how did I get into it? I think I've, I first encountered it 30-some years ago um, when I was studying with some Buddhist teachers. Oh, I, I should say also that there are now many Jews practicing metta and translating it into Hebrew and sure. finding finding the analogs. You know, it, sometimes I teach it in connection with the words of the Birkat Kohanim, you know, uh, um, may God bless you and keep you. May God bring light uh, to you and and uh, be gracious with you and so on. Um, and that just means blessings, blessings of the Kohens. What, how do we translate that usually? Yes. Um, or the uh, priestly blessing, blessing I the guess. The priestly blessing, exactly, which is used in our liturgy. And that's also traditionally what um, uh, Jewish parents, the words that Jewish parents use to, to bless their children. Their, their words, they're very close to, you know, may you be safe and may you be protected. Interesting. And may you may you live with, with ease. So, you know, lots of Jews are doing this and, and playing with how the, the same logic um, is found in, in Jewish texts as well. Um, but then the real practice is um, how do I do it during the rest of the day? Um, and and notice when I've when I've been unkind, um, which of course I am sometimes. But then how do I just come back and notice? Well, really, my aspiration is to be kind as in as many moments as I can, with as much fullness of heart as I can muster, and come back to that aspiration and try again. And the practice is is like training for that, or. In a sense, the like all meditation practice, the the formal practice, the, what for me is the twenty minutes on the cushion, or some for some people thirty minutes, or an hour a day, or whatever it is. That that's when you're doing nothing else but pay attention to your you know to your meditation practice. That's the formal practice, and the the theory is, and this is certainly my experience, that that focus time makes me much more likely to be able to bring that. Uh, practice in some form into my day, uh, as opposed to just randomly, like, you know, I want to try to be kind today here and there, but having had that period of really training my mind on that intention, um, it really becomes a part of me and becomes strengthened in me. And it does become more, um, more likely that I'll carry it through um, with the people with whom I'm in a relationship. I've I've experimented a bit with the loving kindness meditation, and when I get to the all beings, it on the one hand feels like so vague to me. Like how can I how can I think about all beings? And then and then like Hamas will come to mind or Putin say, and I'm like, well, how can I how can I wish these people well? Then I start arguing with myself, and kind of the the, the moment is lost. That I, I don't. I don't right. know what you what you do there, or, or right, 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 right. You know, the mind jumps in, the thinking jumps in, and we start, you know, sort of arguing with the practice. And the teaching is that it, when that happens, and it, of course it happens, um, I, I've lost my concentration. So the question is, how do I step back? Like if I've been trying to offer loving kindness to all beings and then my brain gets all tied up in knots about do I really mean all beings or which beings or how about those beings then I then I can sort of take a step back and like where 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 was I when I where was I when when the practice was really in life alive for me maybe go back to you know a couple steps earlier like when I'm offering loving kindness to someone that I love to uh to a close friend so just to reground and re strengthen the practice because because that's what's more important what's most important is what's happening to my own heart so i definitely i wanted to ask some more communal oriented questions um obviously communities are made up of individuals but before we make that shift is is there i mean is there any general advice you could give to all all the Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and everybody else out there who's 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 traumatized by this—is it—is it, you know, everybody should try 
meditation or everybody should find their own path to loving kindness or or we all need therapists like what what's the you know is there i guess it's hard to give advice generally but but yeah, i guess no, that's what i'm, I'm asking i'm, I'm is, happy to <laughs> i'm a rabbi i could give advice um i would say and i say to a lot of people um you need a lot more care right now than you you probably need a lot more care than you realize you do that's another version of saying you're really in pain and I'm really in pain. And we really need to pay attention to that, to bring more kindness, more gentleness, more space, spaciousness, more love, um, because we're in pain. And that's the first thing. The second thing I would say, um, there's a war in Israel and Gaza right now. I wish to God I could stop it. So many of us wish to God that we could stop it, but we can't. What we can stop is not to contribute to the rhetorical war. There's a second war going on uh, here among us online and in communal settings and at dinner tables and at the Oneg and all of that. Each time you get into one of those conversations, you have the choice whether to contribute to the energy of war and attack or to engage from a place of kindness as best you can, or, or at, le- at the very least tolerance and patience and recognition that this, this other person spouting these things that are difficult for, for you to hear is also a human being and is also hurting. So don't try not to contribute to the war of words it doesn't help and um and the third thing is when a voice arises in your head um and says what is this you know woo woo meditation what are we talking about real stuff here like you know there are real real things that we should do like you know like we were saying before um i believe and and i uh I suggested a couple of places, a couple of texts from Jewish tradition in the article that I think are inclined in this direction. Um, what we put into the world, we can't make everything in the world better, but we can control the space around us um, by what we say and what we do. Um, and, and, and so what we say and what we do is very much influenced by what we think and what we feel. So to the extent that I'm filling myself with with love and kindness and strengthening with each breath, strengthening my desire uh, to bring less war, less hatred, less animosity, and more kindness and caring and compassion and understanding into the world. That's an intervention. It doesn't stop the war, but it, it does um, shift the balance of energy in the in the world. So I, I believe that very strongly. And that's why I've been doing this practice for, for 23 years. It, it also makes me feel better because I'm, I'm convinced. And I think there's, you know, science that, that the, the meta meditation in particular, uh, arouses oxytocin. So, you know, my body responds to it the way a nursing mother, you know, responds, um, to, to her baby. Um, so it certainly makes me feel better and other, other people feel the same way. Um, and and I'm glad that it makes me feel better, but I think it's more than that. I think it I think it does something something a small something that's good for the world. And you don't necessarily have to give up your positions or even your advocacy to do that, right? Or, Absolutely like you- not. Um it has I was it, it has nothing to do with my advocacy except that when I visit a um, an elected official, or when I go to a rally, or if I encounter counter protesters, you know, who are of, of a different position than mine, or if I'm involved in an argument on a on a listserv, um, it doesn't mean that I don't have opinions. I do have opinions, um, but I want to express them with kindness. Actually, the beginning that first month after the attack my opinions were less prominent in my mind. 
really what was most prominent in my mind was how can I respond with love to all these hurting people, including myself? And then I noticed at a certain point, at somewhere in like after the Sloshim, after the 30th, 30th day after the attack, I sort of noticed that my opinions come back, came back, and that's okay. But then the practice is um, to try to express those opinions and to carry them in the world in a way that's um, that's not violent, but that's kind and caring and respectful of other people who have other opinions for for whatever reasons. Have you been moved by this conversation? Maybe found a new perspective on the Evolve website? Deepened your Jewish practice with a resource from ritualwell.org? By the way, if you haven't checked out ritualwell.org, you should. Has your life been impacted by a Reconstructionist rabbi or community? I'm guessing the answer is yes to at least one of these questions. Consider making a year-end gift to Reconstructing Judaism. And by consider, I mean you really should do it, please. Reconstructing Judaism brings you this podcast and, as you see, so much more. We partner with people and communities to envision the kind of Jewish communities and the kind of world we all want to be part of, and we set out to build them together. So join us and help support us. And if you're enjoying this episode, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help other people find out about the show. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about where we go from here. And I think the we right now I'm thinking of are, are, are primarily Jews, Jewish communities living 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 in the diaspora um i you you you've 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 done a lot of anti-racism work you've done also done peace building work um i i wanted to i i um i saw a quote from uh rabbi sharon browse that that really struck me um she did with the ezra klein on on the um the Ezra Klein show that's part of the New York Times network of of podcasts. Um, and, and she had said that um, I think that part of the loneliness, especially for those of us on the left, we feel like we were part of an anti-racist movement. We felt we were part of a movement working towards a just society. And obviously in those spaces, any kind of atrocity committed against a civilian would be outright condemned. And I think what has awakened in many American Jews is a very painful acknowledgement that we thought we we thought we were part of a movement. We thought we were part of a worldview that is now clear doesn't think that we are part of it, and that's very very painful. So you know, I, I guess I was wondering if you you know how you'd respond to that, or or if you're at the point of figuring out how to lean back into anti-racism work and coalition building during, during this time. Yeah. So, um, Sharon articulated beautifully there. Um, Mm. I think a feeling that many, many Jews on the left have, um, to put it more crassly, you know, I was there for them. We were there for them. We stood on the ramparts for and with them when when they were attacked. Why are they not with us? Why were they silent? Or why are they seemingly anti-Israel or not caring about rape of Israeli women or and and so on? But only only about Gaza. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not completely sure why this is. Um, I I I I feel a little differently than most of the the leftist Jews that I talk to. Um, I don't feel abandoned. I've had, I've had a few painful things happen. You know, a a beloved Muslim colleague um, started sending me, you know, really vile videos um, on Facebook. Like, why, why is he sending me this? Or uh, a, a left-leaning foundation that does a lot of great anti-racism work that I've given some money to that then came out with a statement that, you know, completely erased 
Jewish pain. So I, I, I have some of these experiences that people are talking to are talking about, but it doesn't add up for me to, this is to exaggerate it, that, that the world is, that world is against us. We thought they were with us. We thought we were partners, but actually they're against us. They didn't care about us all along. I don't believe that. What I do believe is that um, people involved in anti, anti-oppression, anti-colonialist work have a very distinct view of the world that has a lot to do with power and privilege, and they are not accustomed to seeing white Jews as vulnerable. Now, we've known all along, you know, those of us, those those of us white Jews have done anti-racism work. Notice, you know, occasionally you find yourself in a training and somebody says, oh, it doesn't matter, you're Jewish, you're just white. And we know that's not true. I mean, it's not true mm-hmm. on so many, so many levels. It's a lack of understanding. Um, sometimes it's a fierce lack of understanding. So it, sometimes it seems like it's a willful lack of, lack of understanding. But, but in most cases, in my experience, there certainly are um, people for whom it's, it's, downright anti-Semitism. But in many cases, it's less that and more, um, this doesn't compute. Like white Jews, I mean, not all the, the, the Jews and the, the Jews who were killed in the in Otef Aza, sure. you know, the, the communities around um, the Gaza Strip, some of them were white and some of them were not. Some of them were Mizrahi and, you know, come from, from Middle Eastern um, background. Um, but it's just a does not compute like like we don't we don't get it like that you're so vulnerable yeah 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 something something terrible happened I mean, it's it's crazy that I'm, I'm I'm trying to understand you know I I had to stop there I was trying to describe the position of the person right. And after a certain point, I, I, I couldn't even say it. You know, it's it's ridiculous. There, there's a limit to their understanding. And um, with some people, there's they don't want to understand. Um, but I think some people, when the time is right, and probably now isn't the time, isn't the time, um, anti-colonialist, anti-oppression activists who are watching the rising, ever rising death count in Gaza. Um, it's just not the time that they're inclined to sit down and try to understand better why October 7th was so painful for us. So we need to comfort one another. We need to acknowledge our pain with people who understand it, that it's not over. It didn't end on October 7th. The hostages are still in the big, you know, in, in Gaza and the tunnels being treated you know, horribly, there, you know, many, many of my friends have children who are serving in the army and God knows what will happen to them. There, uh, however many, is it hundreds of thousands of Israelis who are displaced? I mean, all of that right. is so ongoing that it's not just one day we're talking about, we're talking about an enormous national trauma and it's right. It's absolutely right that we are completely absorbed in that and it's also understandable especially for people again from an anti-colonial perspective that what's capturing their attention right now is innocent people being killed in Gaza so for me that doesn't add up as disturbing as it is it doesn't add up to the left is against us the left are i'm not saying that that's what sharon said but i hear that from other people the whole you know the whole left you know they're anti anti-semites right up to the you know to the president of presidents of penn and harvard and 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 all of that i think that it when our trauma reaction when our nervous system cut uh, calms down a little bit it will become possible collectively for us to re-engage at least with some of the people who really were allies and to try to have some of those very painful conversations in which people like me say, it really hurt that you turned your back on us. 
like once the bombing started in Gaza, you forgot October 7th and didn't care about all the suffering that continues to this day in Israel. And that hurt. And they will have to say to us, yes, of course what happened on October 7th was terrible. And then however many, Tim, you know, right now, as we're talking today, 15,000, 17,000 people have been killed in Gaza. That, that's what has our attention right now. So, so that's where my heart is. And those are hard, those will be hard conversations, but with some people, um, they will be possible. And, and aside from that, that's the deepest kind of dialogue work. Then there's the coalition work. The definition of coalition is people who work together on common interests um, because they agree about certain issues. It doesn't mean that they agree on all issues. I, I once was part of a coalition that was fighting for um, a certain issue in uh, in immigrant rights in Minnesota in um, uh, for for immigrants who who didn't have status uh, to get. Um, to get uh, driver's licenses. We worked in coalition. It was a huge campaign. We worked in coalition with some groups that um, didn't believe in gay marriage. And gay marriage was on that, though both those two issues, driver's licenses for immigrants and gay marriage, were both on the, um, on the ballot. And it, so, but it was hard. I went to some events with the organizations where we had perfect alignment on um, uh, on immigrant rights, and we had total disalignment on um, the rights of gay people. That's how coalitions build power. It's like work together on things we agree on. So we still agree on all the things we and the. And black and brown, you know, multiracial, multi-faith um, activist organizations, we still agree on a whole range um, of domestic issues. And when we've had whatever time we need to soothe our pain, um, not that this is going to go away, but, you know, sort of when we can see straight again, um, we still want to work to fight racism. We still want to work against hunger. We still want to work... Um, against poverty, uh, uh, against, uh, against the anti-democratic forces in this country, you know, uh, all of that. We still, we still are who we were before October 7th. So um, I, I can absolutely see a day when that will happen again. And I really understand that it's too painful to do it right now. The, the, the phrase does not compute is sticking with me. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking of the alarming rise in anti Semitism that we're seeing, and on some level, it's the easiest thing to compute. Like anti-Semitism is in you know, the Hanukkah story and the Purim story, the Passover story. It's like goes back a long way. On the other, um, just some of the stuff that we've seen with, uh, like, say, a teacher having to hide out in a in a public school in in New York because it. It was shown on Facebook. She had she had been to a a pro Israel rally that was at at the school where my mother had taught, or like oh, wow. here in Philadelphia where there were, you know, pretty aggressive crowds outside uh, a falafel a falafel yeah. store. It, it does go into a little bit of the does not compute uh, area for 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 a lot of us, and 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 seems to cross the line from criticism to, to anti-Semitism. I, I guess I'm just wondering what, what your response is. I, I mean, I, I recently finished uh, Dara Horn's compelling book uh, with the provocative title, People Love Dead, Dead Jews. And, and she really leans into Jewish practice and, 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 and Talmud study as a, as a response, which in, in some level isn't that different from the, the the reconstructionist approach, which is responding to anti-Semitism with generative community building, I, I guess, uh, it, it, at a time when it's hard to compute, I'm I'm wondering what's what's computing for you, you know? Yeah, thank you, thank you so much for um, for raising that, Brian. When I said does not compute before, what I was thinking 
the people right. I was thinking about were some of the, in particular, black and brown justice activists that I have worked with. And that have Absolutely. had, that had conversations that when, with them, that when they see my face, they see white. Uh, you know, I've come to learn that, you know, I do have white privilege and, and of course I, I am mm. treated as white on the street and all of that. Um, but I, I have tried with very, you know, with limited success to, to, um, uh, to convey that I am white. I am treated with white privilege um, in, a, in America's, you know, racialized hierarchy. And because I'm Jewish, my white privilege is conditional. Sometimes I'm not white. And to, so to white nationalists, I'm not white. And when there's a war in the Middle East, then I'm not white. Suddenly, people want to kill people who look like, like me, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish. So, so that, was, that does not compute. That was describing from the, you know, say, right. black or brown, you know, activists. It's like, I, I don't get it. You look white to me. Like, so I, I don't think of you as vulnerable. By contrast, there is a lot of anti-Semitism around. There's a lot of anti-Semitism around, huge, huge, hugely disturbing and frightening um, uh, surge of it since October 7th. I think this has, this has been the case in all of the recent wars. There's been an uptick, but, you know, monumentally more um, this time. And each of the sort of grossly anti-Semitic attacks that you're describing and, and so many more um, a, a lot of stuff on college campuses, which is which is not, and this is what was outrageous about the president of Penn, you know, be, being unable to say, sure. you know, to to say yes, somebody calling for genocide against Jews, that we don't want that on our campus. Um, but people who are, you know, you know, painting the dorm room dorm doors of dorm room doors of. Um, Jewish students with with blood and ripping off their mm. mezuzot and you know doing things that that are really you know personally threatening, violent, expressing their intention to do harm to Jews. There is a lot of that going going around, not just on campuses. So um, that is true, and that is hugely concerning. And. It's interesting. This, this wasn't wasn't totally what I thought we were going to be talking about today, but um, I think interesting that you raised um, Dara Horn's um, book. I know she's a really celebrated uh, author. I dislike the book um, because I think it's not good for the Jewish people to live primarily in the heads in the in the midst of the narrative of the world hates us they always have they always mm. will it's not entirely untrue right there there has been anti-semitism for 2000 years and there surely is now and i don't think it'll be wiped out so anti-semitism has certainly been a presence in the world um but the fact that the whole world has always wanted us dead, the more we tell ourselves that story, the less agency we have, the less freedom we have, the less creativity we have to try to discern what actually is going on right now. What actually, I, I, there's nothing complicated about, uh, you know, blood, you know, I want to kill all the Jews, those those kinds of messages. There's nothing complicated about that. But the the pro pal the the really blatant, the really um strident, harsh, harshly expressed pro-Palestinian activism, if I'm coming from the mental narrative of the world has always hated us and they always will, I'm gonna interpret that as, you see, here it is. It's the Palestinians and their allies. It's a lot like Hitler, right? But if if I if I have really tried to deconstruct that narrative and not place it at the center of my worldview, then I have a little more space to say, you know, some of those protesters were really anti-Semitic in their expressions. Others of them were just 
out of their minds with pain about about the deaths in Gaza. Now, there's no bright line there, and and there's no way for me to know from the outside what their what their intentions are. But because because I don't hold to that narrative of they've always hated us and they always will, I'm a little less stuck in assuming that every really uncomfortable expression of support for Palestinians um, is in the same category as as all historic anti-Semitism. Wow. Wow. this is this is going to a fascinating place because how do we as humans do the best we possibly can to perceive reality accurately as it's as it's happening like like what you're saying is that the sto- like it's so the story we tell ourselves the preconditions we bring affect how we how we how we see something i mean in in some ways it's like is it is it connect to the mindfulness approach of what is what is true in this moment. I, I don't I don't know if I expect you the answers, but I, I think it's it's um it's 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 real it's really important, you know, the stories we 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 carry with us and 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 so much of what we bring with us makes it makes it hard to tell what's actually happening in front of us. I think yeah, there was a right. question in there. Yeah, I, I think there was. What should we do about it? I think it was, was the question right. I asked. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, each tradition has its own technologies and suggestions, and there's secular suggestions. So just to give one example, the Jewish guiding narrative, uh, to, to the extent that I construct my life around the Jewish guiding narrative that every human being was created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't necessarily take me to the whole world has always been against us and always will, always will be, right? The seeking out, look, aside from the people who embody extreme forms of hate, if I'm trying to embody the Jewish imperative to seek out the, um, well, the presence of God and the, um, the image of God in every person, I'm not going to jump as quickly to label this person or that person or the next person an anti-Semite because I'm going to be busy. My mind's going to be busy looking at, you know, where is the divinity in them and where is the humanity mm. in them? Again, not when somebody's shooting at me, right? You know, not, you know within, within right. reason, but, you know, in my, um, in my thoughts. Um, and so there are lots of other Jewish texts, you know, that I could, that I could cite. That's just one. I mean, that is, that is one, perhaps the, you know, fundamental um, Jewish narrative. There's also great wisdom for me in the, in the Buddhist tradition that I've learned in my, uh, in the course of my meditation, um, practice. And, and that is that in mindfulness practice, one of the things that we notice most regularly is how quickly our minds jump to interpret and create stories about what's actually happening. So if Mm -hmm. I'm sitting on the cushion and my leg starts hurting, I can say, to myself, what, what's, what's true for you in this moment? And I can say, you know, my leg's hurting. Um, maybe I need to, you know, shift position a little bit. Or I can say, oh my God, my leg is hurting. Remember that time, you know, when I, when I broke my leg, you know, this is, I bet I've re-injured that, um, that place. And then that's going to get to another, another bone and that's going to impact my hip. And then if my hip gets out of whack, then I'm going to be in danger of falling and whatever. It sounds ridiculous, but this is how our, our minds make up make up stories. So, for me, mindfulness training has been a very powerful teacher. I do not get it right all the time, but a very powerful teacher in recognizing the difference between what is actually happening and the story that my mind tells about it. And often, in the course of that story, I create more pain for myself because whereas before. 
I was just sitting with a, you know, with a knee that was a little sore. But then I'm, you know, I have this whole story and I am imagining myself in the hospital and with a hip replacement and, and all of that. And I'm, you know, far more agitated and upset. So when I can catch myself, so I find this an incredibly valuable teaching. Can I stop, like stop, take a breath, come back to my body, stop the flow of thoughts and ask what's really happening. So back to our, you know, really our conversation when I read about, um, say a university president who said something dumb in my opinion, you know, during the congressional congressional hearing, I I could certainly create a huge story about, you see, that's exactly what's wrong with, with um, higher education these days. And it's Mm. all this anti-colonial stuff. And there's, you know, there's a huge story there. And, you know, as you said before, there are times that pundits, get paid to, you know, to, to spin out those narratives. But for us as, as individuals, then I'm going to be even more agitated than, than I would be if I just take a breath and say, you know what, I think she said something dumb and I'm really hoping it's going to be corrected. Um, somehow that capacity, if more people had that capacity, um, they would be screaming at each other less maybe even shooting at each other less. So as we said, we, uh, and, and I think where this has been a fascinating conversation and, and, and really helpful to me personally in, in, in thinking through uh, getting, you know, getting, getting through day, day to day. Um, we, we don't know, you know, we don't know when when the hot the hot war will will end um you know it may be it may be over by the time we release this it, it may not um what's what's your kind of top priority or, or or focus right now it's you know you said it you know something definitely seems to have shifted from from the slow sheen we're now at we're recording this on day 63 i think what's What's your what's your top focus right right now, just in terms of helping people and communities heal? Yeah, so let me just say amen to your prayer. You know, may the may the active hostilities end soon. You know, may they happen. May they end today, and may the hostages be released. And you know, all, all of that. Um, it'll be it'll be none too soon. Um, when, whenever it happens, and, and I pray for that very actively, um, many times a day. Um, so I pray for peace, and I engage in certain, you know, online activism, and certain letters I don't sign, certain letters I do sign. You know, there, there sort of some some level of of political advocacy in which I um, in which I'm engaged. I think. Right now, maybe because I so recently had this experience of sitting in a room full of 600 Jewish leaders and had the impression, I could be wrong, but had the impression that a large majority of them are in a really state of traumatic dysregulation, that I really wonder um, if there's a way in our community that we could bring kindness and care, more kindness and care to ourselves and to one another um, and to spend less energy uh, applauding each other's acts of what I, what I call screaming. I mean, I, you know, I, I love a good op-ed as much as anyone else does, but, you know, all of that, you know, pugilistic, you know, fighting with our words. Um, if there were some way that we in the Jewish community could could applaud each other's uh, ferocious rhetoric a little less and bring attention to the incredible pain that we're all car- carrying a little more, then there could be a little less pain and maybe, maybe a little more 
clarity of vision. Um, again, it wouldn't, I, you know, I wish to God I could uh, undo October 7th. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have the power to do any of that, but I'm, but I'm really concerned about um, the tremendous level of pain and, and not, not necessarily um, community leaders helping people to deal with that pain uh, and to bring themselves uh, to provide the care they need. I, I'm not saying anybody's crazy for being out of their minds with grief and rage in the aftermath of mm. October 7th. Of course we are. And we need care in, um, in the way our poor nervous systems are just, you know, shocked out of, um, out of, out of anything like normal functioning. We, we need help. How can we help each other more? That's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking about most this week. Rabbi Eilberg, thank you so much for this important conversation and, and for contributing essays and web conversations to evolve. Um, I think your, your voice really matters right now and, and privileged to have the, the chance to speak with you. Thank you so much, Brian. I mean, of course, I follow Evolve and I follow you very closely. I think, you know, it's, it's such wonderful material you put out and I really appreciated the opportunity to be in conversation with you. We'll be back next month with an all new episode. And it'll be next year too. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilofinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time.